This is the Data Science Conversations podcast with Damien Dehan and Dr. Philip Diesinger, featuring cutting-edge AI and data science research from the world's leading academic minds, so you can expand your knowledge and grow your career. This show is sponsored by Data Science Talent. Hello and welcome to the Data Science Conversations podcast. My name is Damien Dehan and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Philip Diesinger. Today we're discussing deepfakes with our two guests, Dr. Stefan Latvillier and Dr. Eileen Cullity. Stefan, who's joining us from Paris, is an expert in the field of video animation and will bring clarity to what is technically possible with deepfakes and what is not. Uh, Stefan has a PhD in Applied Maths and Computer Science and is currently an assistant professor at Telecom Paris, France in the multimedia team. His research interests cover machine learning for computer vision problems, uh, for example, domain adaptation and continual learning, and deep models for regression and image generation. He has published papers in the most prestigious computer vision conferences, such as CVPR, ICCV, and many others. Along with Alexander Siren, Stefan is the co-author of the very influential paper First Order Motion Model for Image Animation, which received a lot of attention when it was published uh, earlier in 2020. We also have joining us from Dublin today, Dr. Eileen Cullity, uh, to help us understand more clearly the impact on society of deepfakes. Eileen is an expert in the area of digital misinformation, and she has a PhD in communication studies. Currently, Eileen is a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute for Future Media and Journalism at Dublin City University, and as part of a 2.4 million euro value EU-funded project uh, called Provenance, she leads uh, research on countering online disinformation and has given presentations on this topic to the OECD High-Level Risk Forum and also the United Nations International Organization on Migration. Along with Dr. Jane Souter, Eileen is the co-author of a new book on disinformation and manipulation in digital media, which will be published soon by Routledge. So deep fakes can generally be defined as synthetic media in which a person in an existing image or video is replaced uh, with someone else's likeness. Uh, and they've come very much to the fore in the last few years. But Philip, before we, we look at that, can you give us a, a brief background into the history of uh, media manipulation? Yes, media manipulation is not new. One of the oldest and most famous examples is the manipulation of a photograph from the American Civil War called General Grant at Cityport, which was created all the way back in the 1830s. Um, we have a link in the description below, and when you look at it closely, you can easily spot irregularities. It was found out that the photograph is actually a montage of several images and does not even show General Grant at Cityport. The face was taken from an actual picture of General Grant, but the body, his horse and the entire scenery originate from other photographs. Today image processing is firmly embedded in our daily lives. We are used to face detection algorithms when taking pictures with our phones and image enhancing filters are very popular. Snapchat acquired Luxury for 150 million US dollars in 2015 for this very reason. Neural network approaches have been boosting the power of image processing and classification even more in the last couple of years. And we are close to what is called deep fake videos now. Those are very realistic videos of people doing or saying something that are in fact completely synthetic and not real at all. Deep fakes typically combine super realistic facial expressions and body motion 
with efforts to synthesize voices. Stefana is the expert. Do you want to talk a bit about the technological advances that enabled deepfakes? So the main breakthrough for generating uh, realistic deepfakes is the uh, development of deep learning technologies. So in deep learning, what we do, we use a artificial neural network to generate content. So initially, these deep neural network were used to to predict things in images like recognize objects or detect uh, detect objects in, in images or to analyze audio signals, for instance. But uh, recently, we understood that we can use these very same tools to instead of detecting to really generate content. So it can be generating images, videos, or audio signal, text, or any content. And so, yeah, this is the main uh, uh, key, technical key for the, the advance of deepfakes, this artificial neural network that can be trained on huge data set of, of content. What role did data and data availability play for this process? So basically, with the internet, it's super easy to, to collect a large large collection of images of the same kind. For example, if you want to train a, a network to generate fake images of faces, you just have to collect a few millions of images of faces and to let your algorithm train for a few days. But collecting uh, images of faces is now super easy. If you just go on Google, you just enter faces, you get hundreds, thousands of images. And so big companies or even um, governments can really easily collect uh, a lot of data in such a way that it's really easy for them to, to generate uh, fake uh, images. Eileen, what role do social media and the way we share content today play in the context of media manipulation and deepfakes? Over the last two years, there's been a lot of panic about deepfakes, uh, particularly among journalists and verification experts. We're really worried that deepfakes are the new frontier for disinformation and manipulation. But at the moment, those fears are largely theoretical. So we're not seeing a huge amount of deepfake manipulations in um, disinformation research. And in fact, when the pandemic uh, set in, it was mostly cheap fakes that were dominating online. So doctored images or recycled content. And that makes sense because disinformation actors are opportunistic. They want to respond quickly and they will do so as cheaply and easily as they can. And as long as those cheap fakes are effective, they will stay using them. And it's also worth uh, remembering that even without deep fakes, images and videos have always been plagued by doubts about their authenticity. It's very easy to call them into question. So I think as deep fake technology becomes easier and more accessible, we'll see a continuation of issues that have been around for a really long time rather than something radically new. I think for sure the media manipulation has been around for a very long time, but I think, Stefan, perhaps the, the scale of what can be done now is, is, is one thing that's new. What would you say regarding the, the scale and the ability to automate this uh, and, and what uh, the impact of that? For me, there are two main novelties. The first one is uh, with deepfake, we can reduce quite a lot the amount of work we need to generate deepfakes. So before we needed an expert that can manipulate images and he, the expert needed a few days of work to make just one single image that if we wanted to have really good quality image. Now, if you have a network that has been trained to generate deepfake, it can take just a few seconds. Even two years ago, if you want to generate a, a fake video of a politician, you needed maybe 30 minutes video of this politician speaking, plus 
30 minutes of you speaking and in order to train a network to animate a video of a politician from your own voice and video. But now with just a single image, we are able to generate realistic videos of a, of a politician, whereas emotion is driven by your own video. So I think this is the first novelty, the amount of, let's say, work and the amount of data you need to generate a deep fake uh, image or a deep fake video. And the second novelty, I think it's also the realism and the, the number of constraints that we had before. I mean, we could not really handle the complicated scenes and we could not generate it a really complicated defects where we animate, uh, you know, in a very realistic way, all the um, part of the faces of the people, for instance. And now I think also the novelty that we have really photorealistic uh, videos, even for complicated motions and environment. So, Stefan, would you like to give us a, a quick overview of your uh, paper uh, called First Order Motion Model for Image Animation, uh, which received a lot of attention when it was published earlier this year. In this paper, we present a new method for the problem of image animation. So the problem of image animation is a problem where we have a source image and we want to animate this source image based on the motion of a video that we refer to as driving video. So let's take an, an example. Imagine that you want a video of yourself dancing, but you are a really bad dancer. What you could do is just to take a photo of yourself, so you have the source image, and then you take a video of, uh, of your favorite dancer. And what you can do is to transfer the motion of the dancing video on your, on your image, and in this way, get a video of yourself dancing as your favorite dancer. So with our model, we can apply to any kind of data. So it can be uh, faces or full body, as in, as in the example of a dancing video or even other type of objects like robotic data if you want to manipulate some robotic videos. So anyone can turn themselves into Justin Timberlake if they use your model? Yes, that's right. So there is an accompanying video which we'll put in the show notes which uh, provides a very powerful visual description uh, of, of this uh, and of the model. And of course, we will be doing a future episode where we take a much deeper look at the, the technical aspects of, of what's possible with the first order motion model. Um, Stefan, so you, you already described uh, what your publication uh, does and how it advanced the field of image animation. Can you give us uh, a little bit of a sense of how the field is evolving and what made your invention possible? So in our work, we use the recent advances of uh, neural net methods like GAN that I mentioned earlier. And also we work on a recent trend that is uh, the idea of training neural nets with, uh, without supervision in the sense that in the past we needed like a really large data set to train neural network. But now there are many methods that show that we can train neural networks without uh, manual annotation. And actually, this is what we did in our work, since we could show that we can train a network to generate videos without any annotation of key points in the input image and video. So you're saying basically before, uh, when you wanted to do a convincing uh, uh, video of somebody moving in a specific way, you would need motion capturing um, or 3D modeling basically to capture the motion and now that can be just derived from a, from the driving video that you mentioned. So, so yes, indeed. Initially it was a motion capture system, but 
a bit more recently, people started to use an automatic uh, you know, key point detector, but still it requires to annotate a large data set for key points. And so if you want to, to animate, for example, uh, cartoons images, you need again to collect a large data set of cartoon and to ask people to an annotate manually to get the, these key points. And yeah, with our method, we don't need this anymore. Can you talk us a little about potential applications of your invention? There are many, many applications we could think about. Like, for example, in, in, in marketing, if you want to sell a product, you could uh, generate, instead of, you know, looking at only a simple image, uh, a still image, you could generate a video. And it's, so it's much easier to generate uh, videos to, to sell your product uh, online. Also, it's not directly my work, but there are many works on uh, using neural nets to announce the quality of the images and to to improve some properties of the images. So also for marketing, it's, it could be a really good uh, a really good point to have these tools. Of course, a direct application is for like film production for film industry. So um, indeed, we don't need any motion capture system to generate videos. So it will, I guess, in the future facilitate the work of uh, in cinema industry. And there are many other applications, for example, I could uh, cite also uh, video games, because now to generate uh, realistic uh, video games, what we do, we somehow simulate the physics in a 3D environment. And so it's quite expensive in terms of computation, but also in terms of uh, development. It means that uh, people that develop video games has to, you know, design all the 3D environment in which a characters in the video game can, can move freely. And so we can expect with that kind of technologies to, to reduce this cost and also to increase uh, the visual quality of the video games. So this is maybe, let's say, the more for entertainment. And there are, let's say, more scientific interest in, in this kind of model because we, we have shown that it's possible to use this data that we generate automatically to generate data set that can be used by other networks to be trained on. So for example, in autonomous driving, you need really huge data set to train a safe AI system, but it's really hard to collect large data set. And if you just let a car driving and with a, a camera in 99% of the, of the time, you're going to get really boring videos where the car is driving you know, straight, nothing is happening, and it won't help your network and your model to, to get better. And if we have efficient tool to generate data, we can generate these examples of scenarios that are really hard to handle for the system. And in this way, we will be able to improve the quality of the, of the recognition system, for example, for autonomous driving. But there are plenty of applications we could think about. Sounds super interesting. Yeah. Can you give us also a sense of where the field of image processing and image animation is developing into? Like, where do you see the field in two years from now? Or what is the latest uh, technical hype? I think one of the direction will be to work with more complex scenes in the sense that, for example, our model worked quite well for faces. It works a bit for full body, but it's not as good as for faces. Because let's say the, um, the faces have a, you know a structure that is quite common to all to everybody and is not changing that much, but with a full body people can have more uh, diverse poses, and so it's really hard to generate realistic videos of people moving freely. And so we can do it a bit, but not really well, and we can do it only if there is one person in the scene. 
So we expect that in the future we will be able to handle more complicated environments with you know where several people could move together freely and with a complex background and if possible also to generate the the soundtrack corresponding to the video. So I would say it's in the direction of the complexity of the environment of the videos we would can generate. Eileen, we heard a lot about the technical advancements in the field of image animation, but we are also, of course, very interested in your perspective, the perspective of a journalist and how you perceive the challenges these new technologies pose for your field. Could you help us understand that and also talk a bit about the work you're doing at the Institute for Future Media and Journalism with a project called Provenance? Sure. The kind of technological change that we've seen over the past 30 years is really incredible. And it's totally transformed the way we create and consume media. So we've gone from a world where media was created by a very small group of people. So uh, TV companies, Hollywood studios, uh, newspapers, to a world in which all of us create media every day in various formats. And what we haven't developed along with this are any guardrails or signposts that would help people evaluate what they're seeing or that would signal authenticity. So if you think about it, digital content, it floats uh, freely. You've no idea where it has come from. So you might be forwarded a screenshot in a WhatsApp message, and you don't know who created that originally, how many other places has that been. Or if you're scrolling through Twitter, you might see the logo of the BBC, but you can't be certain that that, that account is actually the BBC and not somebody that's just stolen their logo. So it's just incredibly easy to mimic content, to steal content, and to manipulate content. And one of the things we're trying to do in our provenance project is bring back some of those signposts that might help people evaluate what they're looking at. So make it clearer to people, what is the source of this? When was it originally created? How did it end up in front of you? Because it's the other thing about social media, the content that appears in front of you is mostly determined by algorithms. And again, you've very little control over that. And the aim of projects like this isn't to tell people what to think. Nobody wants to be policing the internet or policing what people believe or engage with, but just to make it easier for people to make an informed decision. So you mentioned that there are increasing trust problems in media. Can you give us an example of that? Well, I think after the 2016 presidential election and the Brexit vote, when there was an awful lot of attention on disinformation and fake news, since then we find surveys show that people are very concerned about online content and what to believe. And the problem with this is that it can breed a cynicism about all content. And then, of course, you have certain political actors, most notably Donald Trump, but also a number of European politicians who are actively attacking and undermining the news media. And the combination of these two things just leads people unable to trust anything or unsure of what they should put their trust in. It was very interesting earlier this year when uh, the COVID-19 pandemic set in and the WHO coined the term infodemic. And what they meant was not just that there's lots of disinformation, but there's just an abundance of all information. So some of it is true, some of it is biased or false, and some of it is outright manipulative. And it's the combination of all of it there that leaves people confused and struggling to make decisions about what they should trust. And there's also the other side of the medallion in a world where fakes are relatively simple to create, authenticity then also becomes much easier to deny. Exactly. And I think one of the things that uh, deep fakes, as they become more prominent and more mainstream, will lead to is just accusations of that's a deep fake. 
so the, the big issue is how do you convince people that something is authentic in the first place? I think we see that now with politicians that they say if they don't like what's reported about them, it's fake news. You, you mentioned earlier, Eileen, that deepfakes were not such a major problem recently with COVID. Could you talk a little bit more about that and why you don't think it's it's had so much of an impact? Well, there have been some instances of deepfakes that have been reported as part of big investigations. And primarily it's around the use of synthetic photographs. So when people are creating fake Twitter accounts and fake LinkedIn accounts, previously the norm would be to take real people's photographs. But of course, that can be found by doing a reverse image search. So using synthetic photos uh, is, a, is a bit more effective. So there has been some of that. And really, the biggest application area isn't in disinformation. It's in pornography and taking people's photographs and then using them in non-consensual pornography. That's probably the major social impact at the moment. And it hasn't really transferred over into, say, political disinformation. But I've, I've no, no doubt it will as the technology becomes more um, accessible to people. But primarily, disinformation actors, they are opportunistic. They will do what is very effective and very fast. And those simple, cheap techniques are currently still very effective. And that brings to a close part one of this episode and a very fascinating conversation on the current situation with deepfake technology. Please join us uh, next week for part two of this conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review and a rating on your favorite podcast app. And we look forward to catching you on the show next time.